Our text of emphasis this morning is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, and starting with verse 18. And it says there this. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had it in, her, in his mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid. Take Mary home as your wife. What she has conceived is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph woke up. He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, as we consider your word and are thoughtful about this story, we pray for insight and understanding on who you are and who we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, uh, our friend and Advent hoper, Sarah King, got us started on our Advent uh, sermon series, and we're in the midst of Advent here. I mean, we turned on the snow today. Can you believe that? By the way, thank you for being here, because I know when it snows, everyone hides. But you didn't hide. You're here. Is the subway running okay? Thank goodness. We're glad you're here. Anyway, we're in the midst of the Advent season. The place is decorated. We've got a benefit concert happening tonight that we're going to hear more about. By the way, I should just add, how many of you are coming to the benefit concert tonight? Oh, it's going to be fun. It's going to be, don't let a little snow stop you, by the way. I mean, snow in New York at Christmas, it's perfect. Where else would you want to be? So anyway, I'm going to stop because Kyle's going to tell you and, and, and the others are going to tell you about the holiday benefit concert. But we're in the midst of Advent and Sarah King got us started off last week really well. And she talked to us about the passage in Luke where Jesus uh, is announced to his mother, to uh, Mary. And so today we're looking at the, the other side of the story. We're looking at the story, the narrative of, narrative of Jesus' adoptive father, uh, Joseph. And so we read in verse uh, 18 the summary of what we talked about last week in Luke chapter 1, that uh, Mary, who was uh, pledged to this guy named Joseph, uh, was found to be uh, pregnant not by Joseph or by any other person. Rather, the Bible is very clear about this, that God was responsible for her pregnancy. Now, at the time, the concept that someone could be pregnant without sexual relations uh, seemed astonishingly impossible. But, of course, now it's actually a somewhat common practice for impregnation to take place without sexual relations. We've figured out how to do that. Um, so what seemed impossible at, at that time, we now understand that certainly this can happen. And yet, how challenging this must have been 
for uh, the family and certainly for this, this man, uh, Joseph. In verse 19, we meet this man, Joseph, who we later find out was a, a carpenter, an average guy, uh, nothing special about him, just like Mary, by the way, really nothing uh, outstanding other than they were willing to do what God asked them to do. But in this case, uh, Joseph is a little shaken up by this news about this woman who he is to be, uh, that he is pledged to. And so he also, the Bible says, was a man who believed in the law and tried to be moral. And uh, he believed that uh, the law taught that, hey, if you're committed to someone and uh, they've been in a relationship with someone else, then that is grounds for, for breaking that relationship. And so he decides that he is going to uh, divorce, which was necessary even though they were uh, pledged to each other, where they weren't actually married, it still required divorce. And so he decided that he was going to uh, divorce this woman and but do it quietly so that she would not be maligned in any way. Now I would think that at some point people would figure out that she was having a baby on her own and that the maligning would come, but uh, I guess he thought that maybe his hands were uh, washed, if you will, of the, of the story. So we have then God intervening. Uh, God has already spoken to Mary. An angel came to Mary, a messenger came to Mary and explained all that was going to happen. And so now, and kind of strangely, God waits until after Joseph has this moral uh, crisis and makes... Of the, this decision. God comes to Joseph and he explains the story to Joseph that uh, Mary is pregnant, yes, but it's not from another man. She wasn't unfaithful to the commitment that they had made each, to each other, the pledge that they had made each other, but that God was responsible for this. And then the angel uh, quotes Psalm 130 just to put a little hint we imagine in the mind of Joseph that this is all part of the plan, that this was all a promise. And so he quotes a, a familiar passage that he will save his people. That's a direct quote from Psalm 130. And then Matthew goes a little bit further as the narrator. He jumps in here and he says that this is really, really fulfilling God's promises for the people. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. He says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. This was, had been written 600 years before Jesus showed up. And so Matthew, as the narrator of this story, is trying to show how God's promises come to fruition. We read in verse 24 that when Joseph, this man, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded, and he took Mary into his home. Now, usually there was a period between you, you being pledged and actually getting married of a year. But it seems like Joseph is so compelled after having this, as, as someone would, uh, an angel shows up in your, your doorstep in the night season to give you a message, you're going to be compelled. So Joseph is compelled and he immediately goes over and brings uh, Mary into his home. But they don't consummate their marriage. She, she lives with him until after Jesus is born. And then Joseph gives Jesus the name Jesus. And so uh, that's, the, that's the story. That's the, that's the background. That's the connection to our passage last week, the alternate story of, of Mary. Uh, it's an incredible origin story. I, think, I mean, literally incredible. There's some things that are just almost hard to believe. Um, 
And as I thought about this story, you know, some, some questions jump up, but then, you know, I recognize that we could probably at some level relate to Joseph's mindset here, even though it might seem, knowing what we know now, maybe a little bit harsh, but, you know, he is uh, engaged to this woman, actually pledged to, to this woman, which is a little more serious than what we think of as engagement. Uh, he probably did not know her very well because our concept of uh, a 21st century dating did not exist in first century uh, Judea. Uh, there was no, you know, going to a, a movie on Saturday night. There was no going to the holiday benefit concert together. There was no, like, hours on FaceTime together. Um, there were no dating apps. Uh, the likelihood is that this marriage had been arranged by uh, their parents and that they were pledged to each other. That's the, the concept of being uh, pledged, and they probably did not know each other very well. And so he hears these, now this story, this news that this woman who he's pledged to has become pregnant, and the assumption would be, well, someone got her pregnant. That's a legitimate assumption, right? I mean, if we found someone was pregnant here, as we do almost every week, we assume that someone else was involved in that, right? I mean, we're experts at having babies around here. You guys with me? We're okay? Okay. Um, side note, side note. Nobody really knows the age of Joseph and Mary. Now, I bring this up only because, you know, recently politicians that I probably don't need to be named have, have, have created controversy uh, or, or one, one politician has created controversy regarding this story and another politician by trying to defend the other politician not to be named using the story of Joseph and uh, of Mary. But the reality is that we don't know the age of Joseph and Mary. There's a lot of uh, ideas. One of the ideas is that Joseph was a, a much older man and Mary was a, a, a young woman. Um, but I'll just say that, that there, there's a theological reason why you would make that case, and that is that our, our, some of our Christian friends believe that Mary remained a perpetual virgin uh, to keep her purity. Um, so in order to, to support that theological idea, it's much easier to make the man very old who is going to die off very soon and all is well and good. But the reality is, the reality is that there is no mention to Mary and Joseph's age. In fact, they were probably both young people. Thus, they were pledged to each other. But we don't know. Anyway, a side note to the little political intrigue going on with this, with this story. Might I add a bizarre political intrigue? I mean, I, I don't get too political up here, but, you know, bringing Joseph and Mary's story in defense of uh, harassment of women is wildly inappropriate. I think we, can, we, we should all, uh, all agree on that. Um, so, there, we don't know. We don't know how old they were. Yet, as we think about this story, we think now Joseph, this couple who are there pledged to each other, uh, the, we would imagine that the anticipation is for both of them that they're going to be faithful to each other. This news that Joseph gets that he is, that, that Mary is pregnant would come as somewhat of a shock. And we, we could understand why he would uh, question the relationship. A woman he doesn't know very well, 
Uh, she's become pregnant. He's committed to her. He's hoping that he, she's going to be committed to him. And it seems like, by all obvious accounts, that has not been the case. And so with this in mind, a question for us to wrestle with today, and that is how do we avoid misinterpreting evidence, in, in fact, really good evidence sometimes, and missing out on what's true in a situation, especially in the context of relationship with God. So Joseph makes some assumptions, some very legitimate assumptions, some rational assumptions about what happened with Mary, and he makes the decisions based on those assumptions, but as it turns out, his assumptions were wrong. He was completely wrong. So how do we avoid falling in the same a trap of making assumptions, maybe even rational, maybe reasoned assumptions, but missing out on what really is true, especially what's really true in our relationship with God. So I have a couple suggestions for you on that question. First of all, we need to be humble. We need to be humble. I, I think this is a, a tough one for, uh, for Christians, really for any, for any learned people, any people who feel like they have a knowledge. When you have knowledge, it can be very easy to feel like you have like enough knowledge or all knowledge to really be reasoned about any particular subject or topic. And again, I think for Christians, this is a particular issue. For, for Adventists, you know, we're, this, this church is part of an, the Adventist tradition, Adventist community. I know not all of you are Adventists here, but um, Adventists uh, love knowledge. We love knowledge. We have things like uh, one, one of our friends here today found out about Advent Hope through a, a, an organization called Amazing Facts. I mean, Adventists love some facts. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, we love to hear people talk for hours and hours about facts. Facts. Info. Information. And that's, that's good. I mean, it's good to, to we, I mean, we live in an age where facts, where knowledge is at our fingertips at, at, at any moment, literally. Uh, the problem with facts is once you start becoming full of facts, you can start getting less and less humble because you think you know it all. But lack of humility can lead to us missing out on real truth, on re what's really going on, especially when it comes to relationships and especially when it comes to a relationship with God. So how do we not miss out on, on truth, especially in the context of relationship? We've got to be humble. We've got to be humble. We've got to recognize that we don't know everything. In fact, we probably don't know that much. We're honest with ourselves. And this leads to the second insight that if we're going to avoid missing out on truth, especially when it comes into a context of relation with God, we've got to recognize uh, God's transcendence and our limitations. God is more, according to the, the narrative of the Bible, God is more vast and more, pa and more capable than we can possibly imagine. And in fact, the universe is, is, is bigger than we can possibly imagine. And we know this from contemporary science. I mean, cosmologists tell us the universe is expanding and, and uh, the, 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 the amount of, of worlds beyond our own is just incredibly, incredibly 
Avast, and so with that understanding, we should recognize back to the humility that we must have humility. And if God exists, He is incredibly transcendent. He's beyond what we could possibly imagine. One of my favorite illustrations of just the vastness of knowledge and how limited we are, and I've shared you with this this with you before, so bear with me. But if you think about how gigantic the universe is and how it's expanding and how many worlds exist and how many how many mounted solar systems and then you think about how much knowledge any one of us has about that universe how much universal knowledge do you have about the universe what do you think anybody here have 20 percent of knowledge every still all right every says jumping right at the point zero zero point i mean anybody 10 percent five percent Three percent, two percent. What if we? Everybody here. We got some smart people here, by the way. Avon Hope is a smart, smart community. If we compiled all of our knowledge together, how much of the universal knowledge do you think we have a hold on? We have a grasp on. Minute. I mean, all the people alive in the world, all the people who have ever lived in the world. I mean, there's just such a vastness, the amount of knowledge that there is in the universe. And this, this story. It brings it to us real that God is beyond our understanding, that he is transcendent. He's more than we can understand and that the universe itself is beyond our understanding. And what We try and we should keep trying to understand more and more about how things work, how God works, how the, 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 the planet works, how our body works, but there's a lot to catch up on. So we need to be humble and we need to recognize God's transcendence if we're going to really, really not miss out on on. Truth in relation to a relationship with God. We're not going to assume things and then miss out on the way things really are. Finally, we need to be able to uh, respond to the movement of God's spirit in us. When God uh, speaks to our hearts, we need to be able to uh, respond to this. In this case, Joseph was a good example. He has that angel visit, that moment when he sees in, in transcendent fashion a small way of how, how God really is and how big God is. A, an angel comes and he's, we imagine, awakened by this angel and it's there. God is transcendent. And then when he wakes up, the first thing he does is he responds to God's movement in his heart. He goes and he finds Mary and he makes sure that she is, is taken care of because he knows the story now. He recognizes that his assumptions were incorrect, as rational as they were. Good, rational assumptions. Of course, if she's pregnant, that happened somehow by someone, but no. And so he responds to God's work in his heart. And so we need to respond if we're going to not... If we're not going to be fooled by uh, assumptions, we need to be able to respond to God's spirit. When God speaks to our heart, we need to... Uh, recognize that and move with that. And so we've got to be humble. We've got to recognize God's uh, transcendence. And we've got to be able to respond to God's spirit. Now there's the, this, this would be the time where, where we might feel like we want to, we want to close. We want to say, there you go. All right, go out and, go out and do that. You know, be more humble. Ken, be more humble. All right, Ken? Ken's a humble guy already, but Ken, be more humble. You know, recognize God's, trans Brooke, recognize God's transcendence. 
Helen, you know, all you've got to do is just respond to the movement of the Holy Spirit, and you're, gonna, you're not going to miss out on, you're not going to be fooled by assumptions. And we could end there. Uh, but the reality is that we know that this is interesting and maybe good advice, but it really doesn't uh, work for us alone because, you know, sometimes we're not humble, even when we know we should be humble. And we get in a situation maybe of conflict when someone else isn't being humble either, and it just escalates, and the lack of humility is up in this because you're, you're both being not humble with each other, being aggressive with each other. We have a hard time really recognizing God's uh, transcendence or when God's spirit does speak to our spirit. We don't respond because we have other motivations and we are convicted, but that conviction doesn't lead to practice. And so this good advice may be good advice, do these things and we'll get it all together, but the reality is in practice most of us struggle with these very things. We're not humble when we need to be humble. We have a hard time recognizing God's transcendence. And when God speaks to our hearts, sometimes we just don't want to listen. So what do we do? What hope do we have? We're told that uh, there is one who has done what we cannot do. We're told that there is one who was humble when we weren't humble. In fact, we read about him in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We struggle with humility. Jesus became humble. Recognizing the transcendence of God can be something that's overwhelming to us, but we read in Matthew chapter 19 that Jesus had a handle on this. He was talking with his disciples and some of the uh, teachers, and they were questioning about some of his teaching. How is this possible? And Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Jesus understood the transcendent nature of God. He understood the trans transcendent nature, and he was able to embrace this. So he, he's, he did what we couldn't. He was humble when we weren't humble. He understands the transcendent nature of God when we wrestle with that, and we have a hard time with that. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, we find that Jesus also was able to listen to the Spirit even when it was going to lead to a challenging situation for himself. In Matthew chapter 4, and verse 1, Jesus was led by the Spirit. He, the Spirit spoke to his heart, and he went. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. For what reason? To be tempted. To be tempted. So God's Spirit literally took him to, and put him in a challenging situation and he was willing to listen and go, Jesus has done what we cannot do time and time and time and time again. And so you hear good advice and you think, oh, okay, I'm just going to get my act together. I'm going to do it this time. I'm going to be more humble. I'm going to go to work. And there's that annoying coworker who always makes me not be humble because then I have to bust out with a bunch of information to show them how awesome I am. Uh, but, but that, of course, doesn't happen in our workspace, Nick and Kyle. Nick and Kyle are right. No, never. 
Um, we don't really, we don't have like showdowns of knowledge, do we? Yeah. Um, <laughs> we'll talk afterwards. Um, Jesus has done what we cannot do. When we couldn't be humble, he's been humble. When he understands the nature and transcendence of God, when we can't, he moved to the Spirit when we have trouble moving to the Spirit. And the good news is that because he has done what we could not do, we can take advantage of his place. We can take advantage of his work. We can, by embracing what he's done on our behalf, we can be transformed and changed, and God can do in us what we can't do for ourselves, and God can work in us to start to, to, to give us a humbleness. God can help us to see the transcendent nature of who he is and have a respect for how big and broad and comprehensive and amazing this universe is, and he is in this universe. And God can help us be receptive to his spirit when he speaks to our hearts. And this all happens as we embrace the work of Jesus. This is the gospel. This is the good news that you're not going to get it together on your own. You're not going to be more humble by uh, reading books or meditating or praying or reading the Bible or going to church. That's not going to fix your problems. It's not going to make you more humble. That's not going to make you more understanding of God's transcendence. It's not going to... It's not going to make you more receptive to the Spirit, but as you embrace what God has done on your behalf, and that's literally an everyday process. Today, God, I embrace what you've done on my behalf, that God is able then to come in and start making the changes necessary, start to give you a spirit of humbleness. He's able to open his transcendence and the broadness of who he is to you, and you can understand what kind of being he is. And he can make you receptive to his spirit so that you can start doing what, what you want to do and living the kind of life you want to live because God is working and leading you where you really need to go. And so as we continue in, in this Advent season and we continue to be thoughtful about the God who became one of us, we think about a God who has done what we cannot do. May we embrace his work in this world, in our lives today. Amen.